Well, good morning again. Uh, it's good to be with you after a couple weeks away. Um, good to, to be in God's Word. As I just mentioned, uh, we are going to be wrapping up our series on hell and judgment this morning. Um, and as we're bringing this series to a close, because we've taken some time uh, away from it over these past uh, two weeks, I think it's appropriate for us to just uh, spend a couple moments reminding ourselves of what we've looked at so far to this point. So during our first week work in this series, uh, we, we, we looked at Romans 1 and 2, and we just looked at the idea of judgment in general. We looked at how judgment is a very real thing, and, and the, the sobering truth is that it is coming for everyone. And the reason it's coming for everyone is, according to, to Romans chapter 1, everyone who has ever lived, everyone who will ever live, everyone who lives right now is guilty of making three exchanges with our lives. All of us, according to Romans 1.23, have exchanged the worship of God for the worship of idols. All of us are created to be worshipers. It's in our, our very DNA. But rather than worshiping God the way we were created to be, all of us have opted to worship other things, whether it's ourself or our possessions or it's our family or our job or the list could go on and on and on. We've exchanged the worship of God for the worship of other things. Romans 1, 25, just a few verses later, tells us that we have also exchanged the truth of God for lies about God. Rather than believing that the truth of, of what God is actually like, who he actually is as revealed in scripture, all of us, to, to some degree or another, have opted to create God in our own image, to make him easier for us to swallow, to make him more like us. And then just a verse later, Romans 1, 26, tells us another way that all of us have exchanged or made an exchange in our lives. We have exchanged moral, holy, righteous living for wicked living in our lives. God has created us to bear fruit. God has created us to honor him with our lives. But instead of being obedient to him, as he has called us to do, all of us have opted to go our own way. And it's because of these three things, these three exchanges, that judgment is coming. In our second week, we, we saw that what this judgment would be like. We looked at the, the awfulness and the reality of hell, and we saw that Jesus himself talks about hell more than any other person in the Bible. And because of how awful it is, we should do all that we can in order to avoid it. And Jesus even uses hell as a source of motivation for us to live lives of obedience to God. And he talks about this several times in the Gospels. And then last week, we looked at, we, we, the last time we looked at this topic, we, we just saw why hell is so awful. In our culture, we oftentimes can think of hell as too excessive, or, or God has got this overreaction to, to sin. But what we saw two weeks, three weeks ago, is, is that the, the reality is, the problem is not with God, it's not with what God is doing, but the reality is with us. Hell is awful because sin is awful. And the reality is for us is if we were able to, to fathom how awful, how repugnant our sin was in God's eyes, then the awfulness of hell would begin to make sense to us. What's more, hell not only tells us about the awfulness of sin, it also tells us about the incredible glory of God. God is completely and wholly other, and we cannot begin to grasp the weight of his glory and his majesty and his value and his worth. And if we are willing to listen to the message of the gospel, the awfulness of hell actually tells us something significant about the glory of God. 
Hell may seem like it's too much to us, but that's just because we don't fully grasp. We cannot fully grasp the incredible glory of God. I don't know about you, but this has been a tough series for me, a sobering series for me, and yet through it all, my prayer has been that this would be a series that that doesn't just scratch some itch of of morbid curiosity within us, but instead would be a launching pad for us to go to the gospel, for us to spend time looking at the cross. And and a couple weeks ago, last time we looked at this, we we said essentially the same thing. The issue that that so many people have with hell is not primarily the doctrine of hell. The, the issue is that, that people have a, an issue or a problem with the declaration of the gospel that says we need someone to come and save us. But we cannot save ourselves. Hell points us to the gospel, and while hell may declare the awfulness of sin and the, the glory of God, the, the same is true of the cross. The fact that the Son of God hung on a cross declares that sin is awful. But it also shows us in a way that nothing else can how glorious and good God is. Hell is awful, and we should do all that we can to avoid it. But ultimately, there is only one way to avoid it, and that is by clinging to the cross. The Bible tells us that anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And the question is, saved from what? And the answer is the judgment that awaits all of us. This judgment is coming because of those three great exchanges from Romans chapter 1. But we can escape that judgment because of an even greater exchange. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. We're going to look at this even greater exchange that God made for us. It's summed up in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God has what we need and don't deserve, righteousness, and we have what God hates and cannot stand, sin. So how can we get what we need, righteousness, and get rid of what God hates, what exiles us from God's presence, this sin, And the answer is found at the cross. It's found in this great exchange made by Jesus. And so what I want to do this morning is I just want to trace the story of the Bible, culminating in in the events of Matthew 26 through 28, which talk about this great exchange that allows us the opportunity to escape hell. I don't think it's too big of an exaggeration to say to some degree, one of the primary concerns of the entire Bible is the search for a perfectly obedient son. That's one of the concerns of the entire Bible. The Bible opens with this perfect creation, this this place where everything is good and everything exists in perfect harmony with God. And the the pinnacle of God's creation is not this particularly impressive mountain range. It's not the vastness of the oceans or even the glory of far-off galaxies. God tells us in Genesis chapter 1 that the pinnacle of his creation is a man and a woman. It's humanity. God creates humanity in his image. He creates them to be kings and queens of his creation, to rule over mountains and valleys, to rule over forests and plains, to rule over the deserts and the oceans. They are his image bearers created to be like him and rule alongside him. 
God voluntarily, freely sets his affection, sets his heart upon humanity. Other ancient religions, when they described why humanity existed, they oftentimes would describe humanity just simply as the slaves to the gods. But not Scripture. Genesis tells us that we are not made to be slaves, but we are made to be sons. That this relationship between us and God is not meant to be one of fear. It's meant to be one of family. And the Bible even goes so far to say that Adam, the first man, was actually God's son. Now, as we all know and have experienced, things didn't stay this way, did they? Things are far different than the way God created. Even though God was Adam's son, he wasn't perfectly obedient. In the garden, Adam and Eve had a choice. They could be obedient or they could choose to go their own way. And they decided to set up their own kingdom in opposition to God and God's creation falls into disarray. Now significantly, moments after this act of treason, what we see in Genesis chapter 3 is that God makes a promise to them. Genesis chapter 3 records this declaration from God to Adam and Eve where he says, hey, you know what, Adam, even though you were my son and even though you were disobedient, there is going to be a day when a perfectly obedient son will make everything right again. And the rest of Genesis, in one sense, centers around this question, who is that promised son? Who is that perfectly obedient son that God has said is going to come and make everything right again? And it's not Adam. It's not his sons, Cain or Abel. It's not any of their sons. It's not Noah. It is not Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob. No one is found to be worthy. No one is found to be perfectly obedient. This this question continues into the rest of the Old Testament as well. The book of Exodus describes Israel as God's son. But they fail to live up to the standard of obedience that God demands from his children. Later on in the Old Testament, David and his sons, the kings of Judah, are called God's sons. But they also show themselves to be unworthy. Death and sin reign among the sons of Adam. We know that from Scripture. We've seen that in our own lives as well. If we're honest with our own self-assessment, then we can recognize that we fall far, far, far short of this call to be a perfectly obedient son or daughter. And so this question, when will the perfectly obedient son, the one that has been promised to Adam and Eve in Genesis 3, when will this perfectly obedient son come? And that's one of the questions that Matthew, as he's writing his gospel, attempts to answer. It's clearly seen in the the baptism of Jesus in Matthew chapter 3 where it says this, And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Jesus is baptized, and God declares that Jesus is the one that everyone has been waiting for for centuries. Notice what is significant about the timing of this declaration. It doesn't come after the resurrection. It doesn't come after Jesus' ministry. It comes before his ministry. Jesus has spent 30 years in obscurity as a toddler and then a child And then a growing boy and a teenager and a young man and now as an adult. 
And when God declares that he is well-pleased with Jesus, he doesn't have his ministry in mind, at least not yet. He's got this life of obscurity, this this life that is exceedingly ordinary. And through it all, Jesus proves himself to be perfectly obedient to his heavenly Father. Matthew 4 tells us of the biggest test to Jesus' obedience, at least the biggest test to that point. Jesus is in the wilderness for 40 days, and then he is tempted by Satan. And Matthew tells us of three specific temptations that are leveled at Jesus from Satan. And Jesus passes them all, every single temptation that Satan throws at him. If you're familiar with Matthew 4, you're probably familiar with the fact that, that Jesus responds to every single temptation with Scripture. And that's a good tactic. But Matthew was trying to communicate something far more significant when he communicates this story from Jesus' life. Matthew chapter 4. And the tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you and... On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. You see, in the Old Testament, Israel also is found in the wilderness. And while they weren't specifically or explicitly tempted by Satan, they they faced similar temptations. They faced a temptation uh, uh, concerning God's provision, just like Jesus does. They they faced a temptation concerning God's power, just like Jesus did. They were uh, faced with a temptation concerning worship, just like Jesus was. And in each of those temptations, Israel falls flat on their face. They fail miserably, but not Jesus. Jesus makes this even more explicit when he repeats Scripture, recites Scripture back to Satan. He's referring, or he refers to the same three chapters from the book of Deuteronomy each and every time, the time when Israel was in the wilderness, in this time of failure. And the point is clear. Israel, God's son, failed God in the wilderness. But Jesus, God's son, is perfectly obedient in the wilderness. Where everyone has failed, Jesus has not. Hebrews 4, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. The Bible begins with the story of a rebellious son in the garden, so it's appropriate that at the, the, the pinnacle of salvation, the pinnacle of redemption, there is this moment where the perfectly obedient son is faced with temptation in the garden. Matthew 26, 36 through 46 tells us of Jesus praying in the garden of Gethsemane hours before his crucifixion. And just as, as Jesus proved himself at the beginning of his ministry to be faithful in the wilderness where Israel was not, Here, he shows himself to be faithful in the garden where Adam was not, 
What is this temptation that Jesus faces here in the garden? Well, it's the same one that, in a sense, that he faced in the wilderness. It's the same one he's going to face again on the cross. Jesus, in his prayers, reveals to us that he knows what's coming. He's terrified by it. He's terrified by it. And with nearly every fiber of his being, he doesn't want to go to the cross. Consider these words. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to the point of death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Jesus doesn't want to go to the cross. This plan that the Father has had from before the foundation of the world. And yet, what does he say? Not my will, but thine. So it's almost as if he says, Father, I, I know the anguish that is before me. My, my very soul is breaking under the weight of dread that I feel from this path that I am about to walk, this path that you have ordained from before the foundation of the world. And if there is any possible way for, re, for me to remain faithful to you without going to the cross, God, I, I ask that you would allow me to do that. If there is any possible way for us to break the curse of sin and death without laying those sins on my back, without me tasting death, please, God, reveal it to me. But not my will. Let yours be done. Have you ever noticed the content of Jesus' prayer here in the garden? What does he mean when he asks about this cup? To pass. He says it first in, in verse 39. Going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Again in verse 42. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My Father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. Is Jesus referring to the crucifixion, the, the physical pain that is awaiting him? In the Bible, a common biblical image of, of the cup refers to God's wrath, God's judgment for the sinful disobedience of humanity. And oftentimes, when we talk about the crucifixion, we can focus on the physical pain of what Jesus endured, and it was great. We can focus on the horror of what Jesus experienced, but for Jesus, those things are an afterthought. Jesus doesn't say, hey, hey, Father, if it be possible, I don't want to experience the physical pain of the cross. I'm sure he didn't. But Jesus says, if it's possible, let this cup, this cup of your wrath, pass from me. Whatever very real, very painful, physical death Jesus experienced on the cross, it pales in comparison to the coming separation that he will experience from his Father. 
As we talk about a great exchange, consider the weight of this great exchange. Our sin for Jesus' righteousness. When we take uh, this word pronoun, or this word this, this pronoun, and we exchange it for what it is referring to. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if your wrath against sin cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. So great is Jesus' resolve to do his Father's will that he is going to lift that cup of God's wrath to those lips that are trembling because he does not want to do it and he will not stop drinking that cup until every last drop of God's wrath has been swallowed. For those who find themselves in Christ, no wrath for sin remains for it has been drank in whole by the perfectly obedient Son. Charles Spurgeon once said it this way, he drank damnation dry. Not my will, but yours be done. Philippians 2, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And it's on that death on a cross that I just want us to turn our attention for a few moments. Matthew 27 32 through 34 is so much I, I want to cover in this passage. I just, for the sake of time, I just want to look at three verses. 41 through 43. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. He is the king of, of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. Jesus has been mocked by the Roman guards, verses 27 to 31. He's been mocked by people who are just passing by, verses 39 and 40. Now the religious authorities join in, and they decide to, to gloat in Jesus' imminent death. And I just want us to, to consider for a moment the significance of their words here when they say, he saved others, he cannot save himself. One of the most ironic statements in the Bible. On the surface, what they're trying to say is absolutely clear. Jesus, hey, you know what? You, you've been claiming that you can save others by healing them, but if you're really all that powerful, if you're really who you say you are, then why don't you save yourself? They're mocking who Jesus says he is, and they see his present circumstances as all the evidence that they need to prove that Jesus is a fraud. Let's go a little bit deeper into this statement. The reality is, we know that Jesus is more than capable of saving himself. Just a chapter earlier, Jesus is in the garden when he's being arrested, and he reminds us of that simple fact. Matthew 26, 53. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father, and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? If anything, the chief priests are absolute fools because of all that they have seen. And they think that Jesus is a fraud. Of course Jesus has saved others. And of course Jesus has the power to save himself. But here is the profound reality of this statement. In a way that the religious leaders cannot possibly fathom. They were completely correct. 
If Jesus truly wants to save others, then he cannot save himself. If Jesus wants to save others, he cannot save himself. This is what the prayer of the perfectly obedient son in the garden is all about. He wants to save himself. He doesn't want to go and experience God's wrath, but he also knows that if he does that, then everything is lost. When it comes to hell and it comes to judgment, there will be no he saved others unless he chooses to not save himself. And what these religious elite meant as a taunt will forever be the song of heaven. He saved others. He did not choose to save himself. And in order to save others, the perfectly obedient son is forsaken. God's judgment for sin falls upon his obedient son. That's the focus of verses 45 to 50. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Darkness falls as a sign of God's judgment. Jesus himself shouts or maybe even screams when it says that he speaks in a loud voice. He's possibly screaming this mournful question to the heavens. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God cannot abide sin in his presence and his perfectly obedient son has become sin that we might become the righteousness of God. And so God turns his face away from the son. And even still, in the anguish of draining the dregs of God's wrath, the perfectly obedient son trusts in his father, continuing to call him my God, my God. And about 3 p.m. on that horrible day, Jesus breathes his last and yields up his spirit and dies for the sins of the world. There's this hymn. It's called Stricken, Smitten, and Afflicted. And I just want to read to you the second verse. Tell me, you who hear him groaning, was there ever grief like this? Friends through fear his cause disowning, foes insulting his distress. Many hands were raised to wound him, none would interpose to save. But the deepest stroke that pierced him was the stroke that justice gave. The results of Jesus' death, this great exchange in one sense or immediate, the curtain which symbolizes the separation between God and humanity, it's torn in two. The earth shakes as it begins to soak in the drops of blood that come from the one who formed it. Matthew even tells us that we catch a glimpse of the coming resurrection as, as some people, some saints, are, are temporarily resurrected. Elsewhere, the, the New Testament authors describe the significance of this moment. Romans 4, he was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. The Apostle Peter tells us this, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. 
The Apostle John, who saw this moment with his own eyes, describes it this way in Revelation. He who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. The perfectly obedient son was forsaken. As we began this morning, for our sake, he made him to be, no, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. But as we know, that's not the end of the story. The perfectly obedient son is, is forsaken, but he's also vindicated just three days later. Matthew 28, this is the focus. In his resurrection, he, Jesus proves that he is exactly who he said he was. To use the mocking words of the religious authorities in Matthew 27, Jesus is the one who saves others. Jesus is the king of Israel. Jesus is because he trusted in God. Jesus is the one that God has now delivered. Jesus claimed that he is the son of God. Now we see that Jesus is exactly that. What's more, his resurrection proves that he is victorious over sin and death and that we are guaranteed the same victory if we are found in Christ. Colossians chapter 1, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, and in everything, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on heaven or on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of, the cro- of his cross. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before, excuse me, before him. The reality of hell, the reality of coming judgment, it's sobering, but it ultimately points us to the gospel and to the glory of God. This morning, we've, we've looked at, at the only way that we can escape hell. It's through this great exchange. Our sins for his righteousness. Our sins laid upon him so that we can be clothed in his righteousness. And we're to sum up this morning's focus. It's simply that passage from 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that we've read a couple times. For our sake, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. For your sake, for my sake, he drank the cup of God's wrath that we might become the righteousness of God. Here in a few moments, we're going to partake in communion. One of the symbols of communion is the cup. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul refers to this cup in communion. He refers to it as the cup of blessing. How fitting is that? That because Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath in full, we who are in Christ are now given the cup of blessing. And so as we approach this table, I just pray that we would consider the greatness of what Jesus has done for us, of what it cost him. Let's consider the incredible glory of the gospel. Let us, with with thankful hearts, receive this cup of blessing. Not this cup of wrath, but this cup of blessing with gladness. And if you're, if you're not in Christ, if you're, you're not sure whether you are a Christian or not, then why delay? The author of Hebrews reminds us that if we hear God's voice, if we hear him calling us to repentance, calling us to faith today, then don't wait. Because we are not guaranteed tomorrow. The Bible tells us whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. The one who recognizes their sin 
the wrath that they deserve, but now lays it at the feet of Jesus and confesses him as, as Lord and essentially just confesses him as who he claims to be. They will not perish but have eternal life. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you that you have made a way for us to escape hell, to escape your judgment. And Lord, I ask that you would help each and every person here, whether they know you or do not know you, to come into a greater appreciation of that fact. For those of us who, who do know you, God, I ask that you would help us to marvel at the cross, to join our voices with the, the saints and the angels around the throne saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain. This lamb, you, Jesus, who has ransomed a people for God from every language and tribe and nation and tongue. And God, for those of us here who, who, who may not know you, I just ask that you would be at work in their hearts now. That God, if, if you are impressing upon them to confess their sins and come to you, to call upon the name of the Lord and be saved, Jesus, that they would do that. Recognizing that, they, that we deserve nothing but wrath from you, and yet in your grace and mercy, you went to the cross to make a way for us to be able to escape that judgment. Thank you for an incredible gift, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, as I mentioned just a few moments ago, uh, we'll respond to this morning's uh, word with um, partaking in communion. We do this on the first Sunday of every single month, and this is a, part, a time for those of us who have confessed a, a faith in the Lord Jesus uh, to, to remember what he has done for us. And so I invite uh, our ushers to come forward, our worship team to come forward as we continue in worship through song. Uh, please, please remain seated as the elements are passed and hold on to those so that way we can uh, partake together as a sign, not just of the unity that we now have with Christ, the communion we now have with Christ, but also the unity that we have with one another. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the significance of this meal that you have not given us the cup of wrath, but you have given us the cup of blessing. Bless this time now. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.